Chapter Twenty One of Lost for Love by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty One. Rich is the freight, O vessel, that thou bearest, beauty and virtue, fatherly cares and filial veneration, hearts which are proved and strengthened by affliction, manly resentment, fortitude and action, womanly goodness, all with which nature halloweth her daughters, tenderness, truth and purity and meekness piety patience faith and resignation love and devotement the time came when thurlow house grew almost unendurable to the lonely child of bohemian voysey street no star of hope shone across that barren desert of monotonous daily life those infinitesimal lessons of the lower fourth that slow and gradual process which miss tompion called laying a foundation could not employ an intellect keen enough to have grappled with the difficulties of serious study to have climbed the rugged mountain of knowledge with light and rapid spring from crag to crag instead of creeping up miss stork's obscure pathway at a snail's pace hampered and hindered by small dunces and pinafores the thought of how little she was learning was to the last degree irritating to louisa gurner she could have borne the dreary exile in that unfriendly home if her progress had been rapid if she had felt that walter's experiment would be crowned with success and that he would have reason to be proud of her progress a year or two hence proud of his protege even though he might be flora chamney's husband but to know that his money was wasted that her education was progressing by inches that there was nothing miss storks taught her which she could not have taught herself much more quickly the night-school in cave square would have done more for her than thurlow house was doing nor was walter's chief purpose being fulfilled she was not learning to be a lady her only experience of the genus lady was derived from young persons who cut her or talked at her according to the humour of the moment who were boastful and arrogant loud-voiced and shrill of laughter who called one another by their surnames without prefix and whose various claims to distinction were alike based upon the material advantages of their people louisa wondered if flora chamney sweet and flower-like in any wise resembled the noisy herd at thurlow house perhaps individually in the kinder atmosphere of home the thurlow house damsels might be gentle and gracious refined and amiable but in the aggregate they were essentially vulgar louisa contemplated them with wonder and saw no chance of learning to be a lady in such companionship one day her patience suddenly deserted her miss storks was out of temper wearied by the stupidity and troublesomeness of the small children and wreaked her wrath on poor lou who was bright and ready enough lou answered an unpardonable offence against the laws of thurlow house miss storks replied with a sneer at miss gurner's antecedents at which the small psychophants laughed their loudest by way of conciliating the irate storks lou bounced up from her seat and flung her book upon the table i will never learn another lesson here she cried indignantly mr leyburne does not pay his money that i may be insulted he shall pay no more she ran out of the room and up to the dormitory caring very little what penalty she might have brought on herself by this open rebellion she had not been ten minutes in her retirement before she received a ceremonious note written on highly glazed paper and delivered by the housemaid miss tompion presented her compliments to miss gurner and having heard with much pain of her extraordinary exhibition of temper requested that she would be good enough to remain in her own apartment until solitary reflection had taught her to govern her evil passions and rendered her fit to associate with young ladies the last words underlined i don't want any more association with such young ladies as those 
thought lou angrily as she tore up miss tompion's solemn missive and threw the scraps of paper out of the window to flutter lightly down to the lawn below on the summer air i don't want to have any more to do with them what is the use of my staying here to be solitary and miserable when i'm doing no good for myself only wasting his money i must get away somehow before he has to pay another term in advance she knelt down by the open window looking up at the bright blue sky above those dingy old housetops yonder the rugged tiled roofs of old kensington time blackened chimneys not unpicturesque gables looking up and pondering her future but she was not thinking how she could adapt her nature to the society of miss tompion's pupils she was only thinking how she could get away from thurlow house altogether strange perhaps but this young bohemian could not exist in an utterly loveless atmosphere there had not been very much affection for her in boise street she had not tasted all the sweets of parental love had not basked in a grandmother's fond smiles but jared and mrs gurner had cared for her a little they had not been without their moments of tenderness she had been my girl and my lass to jared when he was in a good temper she had been lou dear with mrs gurner when things went smoothly and she had been our lou even at the worst she belonged to them and in her heart of hearts she loved them dearly yes even the discontented grandmother here she belonged to no one she was an intruder a wanderer from a lower world who had pushed her way into this exalted sphere and was made to feel herself at once unwelcome and out of place i won't stand it any longer said lou looking up at the blue sky with its fleecy drifting clouds i'll run away i can't go back to father after his turning me out of doors i'll emigrate go to australia what's that place where mr chamney earned all his money queensland mr leyburne has shares in some of the ships that go there i've heard him talk about them ships that carry out hundreds of emigrants to a great fertile country where there is room enough and food enough for them all i'll go to queensland domestic servants are always wanted they say and i know how to do housework i've had plenty of it in my time and i should get well paid there and might save money in a good many years and be a lady by and by and i should have an hour or two at night when my work was done to read as i used to in boise street time to educate myself better than miss storks would educate me in three miserable years this impulsive young person was quick to decide where her feelings were strong she had money that banknote which walter had given her a secret hoard of which she had thought with thankfulness in her hours of despondency a sum which would assist her flight at any time the tea-bell rang while she was meditating this awful step six o'clock in two hours more it would be almost dark the soft summer darkness she knew all the habits of the house prayers were read at eight the great hall door was not fastened until half-past while the whole school was at prayer in the dining-room she might go down with a small bundle of clothes and slip quietly out into the forecourt the tall iron gate would be locked but the key was left in the lock until the chief housemaid went out at half-past eight o'clock to lock up for the night any one coming to thurlow house after that hour was received with such a drawing of bolts and turning of keys and clanking of chains as made him keenly conscious of his untimely visit two hours two slow silent hours and she would be outside thurlow house and free she thought of the white-sailed ship the pathless sea that ocean which her eyes had never beheld out of a picture she thought of the homely common people who would be her companions 
no contempt would she meet with from them she knew how kind people were in boise street how friendly how ready to help how interested in one another's welfare fond of scandal it must be owned and not unwilling to throw the first stone but ready to pick up the pelted victim and take her into their houses and bind up her wounds and comfort her when the stoning was over would her flight be an act of ingratitude towards walter the benefactor who had wished to educate and make her a lady in seeming perhaps but not in reality it was the best thing she could do for him to remove herself out of his path for ever an element of perplexity a cause of trouble gone from his life he had looked so sorry for her so distressed so embarrassed at that dismal parting when her fortitude had altogether deserted her and she had shed her foolish tears upon his breast better far better that she should be on the other side of the world as far as distance could remove her from the painter and his young wife better for him happier for her perhaps i may cure myself of loving him in australia she said to herself some tea was brought her tea only in name a pint mug of tepid cocoa a plate of piled-up bread and butter square blocks of stalish bread faintly smeared with some fatty preparation an abundant but not an appetizing meal miss gurner did not even look at it time wore on the sky grew yellow above those ancient roofs then red then opal the great bell rang for prayers the harsh cruel bell whose clamour had so often recalled her from delusive dreams she had prepared her bundle and each square package tightly compressed containing as much as she could venture to carry linen brush and comb a second gown a second pair of boots a bundle which was not big enough to make her conspicuous in the streets she examined her purse an old worn leather portemonnaie it contained the twenty-pound note and one silver sixpence the residue of those three shillings and sixpence which her father had given her for a pair of gloves the sixpence would pay for an omnibus to take her to the city but once in the city what would she do for a night's lodging it might be too late for her to get on board an emigrant ship and she knew enough of the world to know that her twenty-pound note would be looked at with the eye of suspicion it was just possible however that she might obtain a night's lodging on credit and get her note changed in the morning or if the worst befell her she could walk about the quiet city streets till morning she was not appalled even by this contingency she would bear anything to escape from thurlow house and its unfriendly occupants nothing occurred to hinder her flight she went softly downstairs through the silent house which would be so noisy in half an hour hence when the girls were going up to their dormitories she could hear the solemn droning of miss tompion's voice as she flitted lightly across the hall the great door could not be opened and shut without noise a sound that seemed to reverberate through all the realms of space Lou dashed across the courtyard scared by that perilous clamour opened the gate with convulsive haste darted along the little bit of quiet by-street which divided thurlow house from the high road once in that busy thoroughfare she felt as if the worst were over a red omnibus was passing she hailed it with a shrill cry that made the driver bring his horses up sharp she dashed into the muddy road sprang lightly on the step all right cried the conductor and Lou was sent into the vehicle almost head foremost as the horses pursued their journey with a sudden plunge. "'That's how I like to see a young woman get into a bus,' remarked the conductor admiringly to an outside passenger. "'None of your shilly-shally. Not like your middle-aged parties who keep us waiting five minutes while they're tucking up their petticoats and shutting up their blessed umbrellas.' "'Does this omnibus go to the city?' 
faltered Lou, when she had regained her breath after that frantic flight from the privileges of polite education. Yes, miss, mansion house, bank. What should she do when she got to the mansion house? Ask her way to the nearest Australian ship? Or try to find the office of Messrs. Maravilla and Company, the great shipbrokers, who exported immigrants as plentifully as province exports sardines, and packed them almost as closely, yet with extreme consideration for their comfort? the hour was too late for either course she must either find a shelter or walk the stony-hearted streets till morning and business hours revisited this part of the globe the omnibus deposited her at the mansion-house after a journey that seemed long a journey through lighted streets that had a bright and cheerful look pleasant to the eye that had not of late beheld a lamp-lit city at the mansion-house lou asked her way to the docks but was unable to state what docks she wanted and therefore received vague instructions to keep straight on through cornhill and then ask again to lou cornhill was as other hills and not seeing any sharp incline she turned off to the right and strayed over london bridge into the borough here she wandered for an hour or so till weariness began to creep on her even that bundle of clothes grew heavy after she had carried it a long time she sat down on the steps of st george's church to rest but was told to get up and move on by the guardian of the night banished from this haven she turned out of the broad busy borough still busy even at eleven o'clock and entered a labyrinth of quieter streets which led her by various turnings and windings into another broad and busy thoroughfare the old kent road from the old kent road she wandered to the new where she looked hopelessly about for some house in which she could venture to ask for a night's lodging without fear of entering some den of infamy those small dingy streets had a doubtful look the dark obscure houses might be the abodes of vice and crime gaslights and a broad road seemed in some measure warrants of respectability she paused before a coffee-house which was just closing for the night a house that sold no spirituous liquors dealt only in such mild beverages as tea coffee and cocoa and might therefore be trusted here she was told she could have a bedroom and emboldened by the landlady's face which was honest and friendly lou showed her the bank-note as a voucher for her respectability it's all the money i have about me she said and i should like to get it changed if you could tell me where to find any one who would change it if it's a good one i can get it changed fast enough said the landlady you needn't be afraid to trust me with it i've kept this house fifteen years and my father before me but how does a young woman like you come by a twenty-pound note wandering about all alone at this time of night with that bundle i am going to emigrate answered lou i've saved the money to pay my passage i'm going to queensland to service ah and to get a husband i suppose that's what all the young women immigrants are after no returned lou with a sigh there's no one in queensland that would tempt me to marry she entrusted the note to the woman not without a fear that she might be made the victim of some london sharper but the landlady's face was honest and the place had a substantial air a servant-maid brought her some supper a slice of pale ham a roll and pat of butter and a large cup of steaming coffee rest and food were alike welcome she had eaten nothing since one o'clock and she had walked till she was dead beaten it was positive luxury to sit in the gas-lighted parlour where the landlady's work-basket adorned the table and the landlady's big tabby cat was purring its contentment on the hearth-rug lou ate her supper with a thankful spirit grateful for providence for this harbour of refuge in the big awful city awful to her by reason of its strangeness and all the legends she had heard of its iniquity she smiled at the thought of having escaped so easily from miss Tompion 
perhaps they were driving about london in cabs some of them hunting for her they would hardly find her in the new kent road hardly follow all those doublings and windings by which she had found this humble shelter the landlady returned in about twenty minutes and laid nineteen sovereigns and a pound's worth of silver before miss gurner there she exclaimed i've got it for you but it wasn't very easy at this time of night i can tell you loo was duly grateful and a quarter of an hour later was slumbering placidly in mrs hampton's two-pair back wrapped in happier slumber than she had ever known amidst the frigid proprieties of the thurlow house she had begged to be called early and rose at six awakened by the first stir of life in the house she had breakfasted and paid her small account by seven when she took a friendly leave of the landlady who told her the nearest way to thames street where she was to find the office of mr maravilla the shipbroker whose vessel sailed between london and brisbane with their mighty cargoes of poor humanity she walked to the busy street by the great river still carrying her bundle found the office and had to wait nearly an hour for its opening here she paid half her passage money eight pounds out of sixteen and received a ticket entitling her to all those various and numerous articles of outfit which are provided by a paternal care for the childlike and confiding emigrant she saw john maravilla himself opening letters and telegrams with the rapidity of a steam-engine and giving orders to three or four clerks at their different desks while busy underlings pushed to and fro in and out a smart and orderly office desks of shining mahogany smaller and more sacred offices opening out of the main building like the chapels of a continental cathedral plate glass resplendent on every side plenty of light plenty of space or the most made of all available space and a superabundance of energy an all-pervading briskness and vitality that was like quicksilver mr maravilla himself condescended to address the lonely applicant struck by an appearance which had little in common with the mass of immigrants going out alone well you can't do better domestic service that's the thing out there wages three times what you can get in england mutton three pence a pound climate splendid husbands abundant assisted passage eh no going to pay yourself foolish girl never mind do well in queensland never want to come back nobody ever does jones make out this young lady's ticket you're just in time for the promised land blackwall railway will take you down to the west india docks ask for the promised land no time to lose she'll be towed down to gravesend this afternoon show that paper get your outfit good morning loo had hardly time to breathe before she found herself out in the streets again with that mysterious ticket her passport to the antipodes in her hand fairly launched for queensland though she stood in the london street she felt that she no more belonged to it had no more part in its busy life that she was already an exile eager as she had been to emigrate the thought sent a sudden pain to her heart what is that mystic tie which binds man to his native soil so that be he never so careless to leave it is to feel a human sorrow as when we say farewell to a human friend there had been rain all through the night and early morning and thames street was at its dirtiest but the mud and slush of thames street were as nothing compared with the quagmires of the west india docks which loo approached by and by from the station here was mud indeed and a new world the mighty world of ships tall slim spars piercing the summer sky colours flying gaily from the foremasts of gigantic vessels drawbridges to cross merchandise being carried to and fro casks without number forests of logwood wildernesses of wool sacks 
Lou had to ask her way a good many times, showing her ticket by way of warrant for her presence in that unknown world, before she arrived at a long, low shed where the superintendent was giving out stores to the emigrants. Beds, tin pannikins, cutlery, forks and spoons of brilliant Britannia metal, which would not have disgraced a middle-class dining-table, hardware, marine soap, clothing even to some favoured wanderers, who mortgaged future labour to obtain supplies in the present, blue worsted jerseys and moleskin trousers for the men, substantial brown and grey stuffs for the women to fashion into gowns and petticoats. In this repository the bustle of departure was at its height. A clerk was sitting at his desk, entering the names of emigrants, the number of births, here in family groups of two, two and a half, three, three and a half, four, four and a half, five, the halves representing the juvenile members of the tribe, there in solitary singleness, the youthful agricultural labourer, the pale mechanic, the young woman going across the world to better herself. The emigrants passed along a kind of gangway, like the rail which guards the queue at the door of a Parisian theatre, and after receiving the number of their berths went on to the counter, across which Mr. Swan, the outfitter, was distributing his stores. First a narrow straw mattress, in new ticking, clean and fresh from the manufacturer. Next an assortment of tin vessels, mug, plate, basin. Then cutlery. And finally three or four pale bars of marine soap. To some, moleskins and jerseys. To others, none. He was a bright, pleasant-looking man, this Mr. Swan, with a frank, good-humoured face, which was more youthful than his years. He spent his life in dealing out stores to emigrants, or contracting for tin pannikins and mattresses, and without having ever emigrated himself, looked upon emigration as the most agreeable thing in the world, a destiny for which all were born, those who remained behind having merely cheated fate and deprived Queensland of her citizens. Mr. Swan would have depopulated the British Isles and sent their inhabitants southward in quest of fortune duly provided with tin pannikins. He was an enthusiastic Shakespearean student, and had the verses of the master bard ever on his lips. Could hardly distribute his tins without a happy quotation, in fact. This morning's work would go on for some hours as fast as ever work was done, the tin pannikins jingling and clattering, the straw mattresses rustling, the shed crowded with human life, immigrants struggling up to the counter emigrants staggering away under the burden of mattresses for a family and mr swan's shakespearean quotations rising cheerily above all the clatter and in the afternoon mr swan would go down to gravesend on board the promised land and would be seen in every part of the ship distributing pannikins up to the last moment why so now i have done a good day's work said mr swan as he checked off a number of vouchers receipts for the goods he had distributed which represented his claims for reimbursement by the queensland government here comes a man let's stay till he be passed now young man clear out with those mattresses now fair one does your business follow us to louisa who had by this time approached the counter going out alone ah tired of this used-up old country i suppose and thou art flying to a fresher clime quite right queensland is the sphere for you there's place and means for every man alive there you are my dear one plate one mug two spoons plenty more on board among the single men forward the young women are aft but i have seen some of em forward but for their virtue only is their show they live unwooed and unrespected fade that's your mattress my dear clumsy load for a delicate young woman like you methinks i could deal kingdoms to my friends and ne'er be weary pushing across the straw mattress 
Lou grasped the slippery tick as best she might, still clutching her bundle, and struggled away from the counter. A young immigrant, Irish and good-natured, relieved her of her heaviest burden, and offered to carry it to the ship for her. There lay the promised land, a giant vessel, black with a gold moulding round her, and her name in golden letters on her bows. All was life and motion on board her, passengers struggling up the accommodation ladder laden with their belongings, ship's officers hurrying to and fro, sailors bawling to each other, stores being shipped, government inspectors taking stock, all the business of emigration in full swing, and the emigrants themselves looking in no wise miserable. Whatever pangs they might feel hereafter, when the last faint outline of their island home faded from their gaze, and the sense of exile came upon them, they seemed too busy just now for regrets or lamentations. The young children sent up their feeble wailings, bewildered by the strange and bustling scene. But fathers and mothers, lads and lasses, looked happy enough. Indeed, the novelty of the scene seemed to have put everyone in good spirits, and cheerful voices and mirthful laughter rang clear above the various sounds of preparation. At one o'clock there was a strong muster round the galley or cookhouse, and brawny labor-hardened hands held out the tin dishes just received from Mr. Swan to an intelligent and shiny-looking colored man who filled the bright new platters with roast beef and steaming potatoes. For many weeks this good-tempered-looking darky would minister to the living freight of the promised land, and the same eager cries would be heard from the pushing crowd of, "'Now then, doctor, my turn next!' This distribution completed, family groups were soon seated at the clean deal tables, looking happy enough in their narrow quarters, and doing ample justice to their first meal on shipboard. Hats and bonnets were hung up on convenient pegs in the narrow berths, luggage for the voyage arranged, children began to trot to and fro in the dusky cabin with curious faces, wondering at this great strange floating home. Lou was taken down to the young woman's quarters and handed over to the matron a comfortable-looking person who had spent ten years of her life in perambulating the ocean. She asked Miss Gurner a good many questions as to why she was leaving England and so on, which the Thurlow House fugitive found it rather hard to answer. But she did contrive to answer them somehow, and the matron, who heard too many statements to pay minute attention to details, was satisfied. Lou found her allotted portion of space and laid down her mattress. It seemed a very narrow space after the ample dormitory at Thurlow House, but Lou did not regret that loveless mansion. The girls here were vastly below Miss Portslade in the aristocracy of Bath in the social scale, but they were cleanly and comfortably clad, honest and good-natured looking, light-hearted and friendly. Some of these young exiles gathered round Lou, and would fain have taken her up on deck to watch the newcomers and enjoy the variety of the scene, but this favour Miss Gurner declined. "'I'm very tired, so I'll stay down here till the ship starts for Gravesend,' she said, fearful lest someone from Thurlow House should have tracked her to the docks and come on board to claim her. "'What, haven't you any friends coming to bid you good-bye?' asked one rosy-cheeked damsel pityingly. "'No, my friends live too far away.' "'And so do mine,' said an immigrant of eleven years old, who had travelled up from Newcastle alone, and was going out to Brisbane to join some prosperous relations.' father and mother are poor people at newcastle and there's such a many of us and uncle and aunt have got on so well in brisbane so aunt's wrote to say if she could send me out to her she'd keep me and bring me up and i'm going out alone while the little girl was telling her story a jolly-looking man with a round ruddy face bright twinkling eyes and somewhat falstaffian figure came pushing his way through the groups of girls with the sailor's easy rolling gait to see that all things were going smoothly in this part of the ship 
this was captain benbow the master of the promised land a man who looked the very personification of good health and good temper he was round as a cask and seemed brimming over with kindliness and jollity like a hogshead with sound old october this was his tenth voyage to queensland and his name was now almost a household word among the numerous homesteads of the new colony and in many a letter home friends were urged to come out in the promised land captain benbow heard the child's account of herself with a fatherly smile patted the curly head and bade the matron take good care of the youngster if she wants anything out of the ordinary way let me know said he and the little lass shall have it lou sat down in a corner and made friends with this youngest emigrant while the bustle and clamour and heavy tread of hastening feet went on overhead she was glad to have something weaker more helpless than herself to cherish this fresh bright little north country peasant girl might be quite outside the pale of thurlow house gentility but lou was not the less pleased with her by and by about four o'clock in the afternoon came heavier trampings louder noises a grating of cables the ship was leaving the docks do let's go on deck cried the little girl and lou yielded as much to her own unspoken wish as to the child's expressed desire when she ran up the ladder to see the last of the great city which had been her cradle the ship was just beginning to move drawn by a little puffing tug which looked a mere cockleshell beneath those giant bows the side of the dock was crowded with spectators men waving their hats women waving their handkerchiefs some weeping more gazing upward to that people deck with a friendly grin of encouragement the mass seemed to surge to and fro as the ship glided away a cheer rent the air an answering cheer rang from the deck and lo the promised land shot out of the docks on to the broad breast of the strong river and lou felt she was an exile will he be sorry when he misses me she asked herself End of chapter 21